This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com. Hello and welcome to this bonus episode from For Tech's Sake, where you're getting a load of extra chatter about AI and the arts. In this very special bonus episode, we actually start with an extended cut of our pre-interview discussion because we ran on way too long talking about the various pros, cons and in-betweens of AI's intersections with art. With our expert guest, Ashling Murray, an experienced curator and creative producer who recently launched Beta, an all-new international arts and technology festival, we spoke more about the shift from STEM to STEAM and her work in the space both internationally and here at home. We hope you enjoy this long-winded chat as much as we did, and there's still time to get yourself tickets to Beta's events if you go to betafestival.ie. Do art and technology really mix? Can a robot be the next Picasso? Will I get to see John Lennon live in the metaverse? This is For Tech's Sake, a co-production from Silicon Republic and the Headstuff Podcast Network. We're your hosts, Jenny Darmody and Elaine Burke. And today on our technology podcast, we're going to talk about art. And normally you have to argue for that placement of arts alongside technology. But I think we're at a cultural moment where people really understand the linkage between the two, maybe more than they've ever considered before because AI. Yeah, yes, everything, everything because AI. But yes, it's true. There's a lot of talk about um, AI in general and generative AI, about how tech and art intersect and how they should intersect. And there's some really, really big questions there that have to be answered. Yeah, like questions that actually challenge the thinking of the nature of creativity. Uh, It does really feel like we're kind of at a tipping point with this stuff that's going on, essentially. And we should say up top that we're, we're here for the combo. Arts and tech do go together in lots of ways and each can serve the other in different ways. And that's why there's a whole movement for putting the A in STEM, making STEAM. Choo choo! <laughs> STEAM we, engine. I guess. I got it. I got it. It's a choo-choo. <laughs> we are we're on board that choo-choo train. Um, and we have even used AI for this podcast. I am, in fact, an AI. No, I'm not. I'm kidding. <laughs> AI Jenny. AI Jenny. No, um, but we do, we have used, it's not for the podcast you're listening to per se. We are here recording ourselves. We are humans. Uh, but our logo, which you see across all of our platforms and where you can find us, that was designed with the help of DALI. Yeah, and it wasn't even our idea. <laughs> um, it was Matt Madden who works here at Head Stuff, and he suggested it because he, he as a designer, he thought it would be good to include a fairly new technology at the time. Mm. Like it's one of the early releases of Dali that he used um, to create and manipulate an image that was for a tech podcast. And we were really happy with that idea because it does speak to that spirit of collaborative AI, which we're pretty okay with. Yeah, and because tech is essentially a tool and it's it's how you use the tools that counts at the end of the day. And if an artist wants to use AI or other technologies in their work, like we shouldn't stop them. Well, well, <laughs> maybe. How <laughs> narrowly are you defining artists <laughs> and how broadly do you want to see AI get involved? Yeah, OK, we're getting into the weeds a little bit here. That makes sense. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of kind of thoughts about that and like, you know, artist infringement and, you know, figuring out how much you're cutting out humans and things like that. And, you know, whether or not you're getting rid of the work of artists, say like things that we don't know about, like stock image creation and stock music and things like that. There's issue with copyright and other such things. So, yeah, there's a, there's a lot to talk about here in terms of like what is 
what is considered artistic work and how much of it is created by human, how much of it is created AI, does it then tip over into a world where that wasn't really created by an artist? So there's a lot to unpack here. Yeah, and even asking what is art, yeah. <laughs> which is a question that I think will never, forever be unanswered. But we can take some real life examples of AI in the world of the arts because we have them and we can weigh them up with the good and the bad because that's what we do here. Um, so say an artist uses AI to create a submission for an art competition. How do we feel about that? Yeah, so this actually did come up. This has happened a few times. Sorry. Yeah, this has come up and, and the AI generated art has won. Um, and and that has caused yeah. massive, massive controversy. So in both cases, it wasn't d- disclosed. Am I right in saying that? Yeah, in the art competition I, and in the photography competition. I believe so. Yeah, yeah I believe so. Because with the photography one in particular, because he it was, was trying to make a statement. Yeah, because it was tricking the yeah. judges. Um, so I think that kind of comes down to my thoughts on it, which is like transparency is a huge issue here. So I think you can't stop. AI from being used. And like the example we just said, if artists choose to use tech and AI in their creation of images, and that's still a form of artistry, I think that should be addressed. But maybe there's limitations that need to be considered or like level of work. I don't know how that exactly could be measured or policed. It would be arbitrary potentially, which is another issue in itself. But, you know, there's ways in which, you know, there could be competitions where, you know, it's AI generated art that like, you know, Mm -hmm. is an actual category itself and things like that. So I think there's ways that needs to be addressed. But the transparency, like artists having to, you know, state how they used AI, how much Mm -hmm. it was used and why, you know, I think there's an argument to be made of whether or not there was value to add AI to this. Like there was a reason AI was put into this particular piece mm-hmm. of art. So there's probably some parameters that need to be developed over time. Yeah, which I suppose competitions have had to do over time as well. Um, so what about non-artists, like businesses, non-creators who used to hire people or professional services to create or license artworks? What if they start making that w- those works themselves using AI and then they stop paying the people that they used to pay for it. Because this is a huge yeah. microeconomy in many cases. Like you mentioned about the kind of stock imagery, yeah. stock music and stuff like that. But even something as, as small and maybe we think of it as inconsequent as YouTube thumbnails. Mm. Like that's a whole big microeconomy for people. Yeah. Mr. Beast, who's a massive YouTuber, he reportedly tests up to 20 variations of YouTube thumbnails just to see like what's going to garner the biggest audience, what's going to get the most clicks. And he has reportedly paid up to $10,000 for one thumbnail. Oh my God. Some uh, video creators pay hundreds of dollars. Some will pay far less, I'm sure. Yeah. But like that's a lot of work that's currently paid work, but that could be displaced because there's AIs now being created to to displace them, essentially. Yeah, and it is it is a forgotten jobs economy, I think, because there are creators behind stock images and stock music and um, free-to-use Creative Commons licenses type um, music and media and things like that. And I actually, when generative AI sort of exploded over the last year, um, there was talk around, you know, infringing on artistry and, you know, the, the cultural things that we all are more aware of. And a, a pro a pro uh, inverted commas was made about you know how it well like you know we're not talking about you know creating artificial music that like you know are displacing actual artists we're just talking about creating that stuff that's like free and nobody like cares about and like it's not hurting anyone and that's when that kind of microeconomy of people be like um hello yes (laughs) I get paid to make that stuff and if you just start filling elevators for example and other places where there's like proper music that's non-licensed 
that's paid work that's getting displaced. So that is a huge issue and something that like needs to be addressed. There's so much of that invisible work that we don't really account for. And then I suppose that's maybe why people build tools that are like, oh yeah, no, there's no person behind that. That's mm-hmm. just a thing that happens. Um, what about if artists aren't using the AI to create art, but they're using it in their like admin for their commercial endeavours, so better enabling them to actually compete with larger players because they can basically do the job of 10 people, which a bigger agency or whatever would have to organise their work and, and put their work out there. I think that's great. That's cool. I think that's, that's good. I good. think it's good because, again, like artists and those creative industries are hard enough to work in as it is. So I think that anything that helps them, like I don't think that they're like by using it to kind of compete with bigger guys is causing displacement it's getting them onto maybe a better level playing field I did try to think this all the way through though because I was like well there Mm. must be a bad side to this (laughs) that's what I was afraid to even say I think it's good question that's good actually Uh, because I was thinking right okay so if we get that happens then we get you know indie producers are able to better compete but then you know big labels uh, big agencies big companies aren't going to be happy with that so Mm. do their services then become a higher premium ever more unreachable by other people do they become just a bigger gulf between the two sides of the coin is that something that happens then that could be interesting but uh, there's another side of that as well which I thought about as I was um, thinking about how easy it is to create with AI which is you know there's been a race to the bottom I think happening in the creative industry for a while now independent of AI um, which is like there's sites and stuff with that like that gigging economy but Mm. like like where you're essentially there's a race to the bottom of people will just create stuff and like literally charge like a fiver, a tenner, mm. 20 quid for something that should be valued way higher. But then you're putting other animators, other creators, other artists, like whatever they're doing, writing something, drawing something, creating something out of the market because it's a race to the bottom. So AI might make that worse for a while because it's easier for mm. people to produce something on mass that's not very good quality but for very very cheap but it might also bring it in-house to the businesses who were underpaying in the first place and therefore maybe get rid of that little bottom part of it part mm. of the issue like it, it could have a good and a bad effect on it because again then people will want to pay for things that are actually human created as opposed to AI, it could have a turning point. I'm trying to be optimistic here. Yeah. yeah. Um, so what about somewhere in between? So they're not using AI to create the art or technically in the admin support area, but in the creative support area. So say in music, you write a song and you do the recording, but you can use AI for like engineering, mixing and mas- mastering. So I think that's different than Matt with our graphics. Or it's actually like Matt with our graphics, I should say. The creator opts to use the AI themselves, but there's still an element of their creation as part of the process. Yeah, it's it's like they're holding on to the control, essentially, mm. of it. And that's actually what the WGA won from its strike action. Um, so that will be voted on in between uh, recording this episode and when it goes uh, live. But um, basically under the new regulations, so following that massive writer strike action, AI was a big factor in it about whether or not AI would be started to be used to write 
scripts and cut writers out of it essentially. But under the new regulations, AI can't be used to write or rewrite literary material and AI generated content can't be considered source material. Uh, it will also allow writers to use AI to write scripts if they wish, which comes back to what you said. But studios can't force writers to use AI such as ChatGPT when performing their services. And producers must also disclose to the writer if any materials given to the writer in the first place has been generated by AI. So that's like a major, major step, I think. And I think the SAG-AFTRA will hopefully win the same because what they don't want is for background actors to be paid for one day's of work for some footage that can then be put into an AI model and spit back out and used for several days' work, but without pay. Yeah, and this was hard won by WGA. And yeah, like hopefully it does get approved because it does seem like reasonable asks on yep. their account and hopefully SAG after gets their deal as well cannot express enough the value of unions in this minefield mm. that we're entering into and we really see that in, in how those protests played out um, but let's get to the root of it all of this generative AI that we're mentioning is most likely trained on artistic works without permission or consent how do we feel about that? Not great it's Not great Bob <laughs> Not great <laughs> Um, yeah, so this is this has been an issue coming up in the last couple of months as well, um, particularly writers, um, authors. The Authors Guild of America um, like wrote a letter and have been trying to sue OpenAI, essentially. Um, big names, Margaret Atwood, Jodie Pickelt, etc., are on the letter basically saying, you know, <laughs> our writing is being ripped off on the internet and being used to train these models without our permission. One name I noted uh, that was massively ripped off on the AI generators is Stephen King, who, my hero, um, <laughs> but has a slightly different view of it, like a little bit more relaxed. He's not he's not for it, ripping off his stuff, but he does believe that creativity requires sentience. So he's kind of to a level not super, super worried about it. And also is like, even if I could stop it I wouldn't be able to stop it even if I could but also I don't think I'd bother because there's only so much that you kind can of do kind of feeling threatened by it yeah and I think the sentience <clears throat> argument is a, is a really important one in the art industry is something that we all have to like hold on to in terms of you know and I suppose like Stephen King being Stephen King probably has loads of poor imitators that aren't AIs yeah. that haven't toppled him to this day like he's, he's also Stephen King. He so. also famously hates a lot of the movie creations that come out of yeah, it yeah. that are based on his books. I like how salty and honest he is about that stuff. Yeah, um, big but, fan. <laughs> yeah, but I would have thought that, like, I would have thought that that case was actually a really, really strong one that the Authors Guild of America is bringing against OpenAI because what they're saying is it's not just stop plagiarizing our work in your model. They're actually saying that the source material was from pirate so websites, pirated sources. So. Yeah, that sounds really cut and dry to me, but apparently the legal experts in the state say this could possibly be dismissed as fair use. Fair use being yeah. used very broadly there. Like, yeah. is, is this fair? I wouldn't call it fair, <laughs> personally. Um, now, I've, I've had a thought about the fair use thing because fair use, um, not a legal expert, but fair use uh, comes up a lot for me in um, my outside of work area where I'm like chilling on YouTube and watching say like commentary or uh, reviews of movies or reaction videos and things like that they always put that little fair use copyright disclaimer thing at the start um, but I also know that they get hit quite quickly sometimes with copyright claims even though they do everything they can to do like minimum amount of time and stuff like that and it's interesting how fast they get hit because movies, production companies, big, giant names with loads of money compared to the mm. Authors Guild of America. Mm. Um, you know, so it's an interesting idea that, 
you know, the boys with the big power will probably be able to smack down these fair use lawsuits faster if they yeah. want to compared to other um, areas. So that's an interesting thing, particularly for artists or independent people or smaller people who yeah, are not if, represented Even if the copyright big... battle is won, it's probably only going to be won for the people who have the most powerful lawyers, yeah. not necessarily for everyone. Yeah. Um, but it does beg a question as well, like, are we just not used to this form of this kind of fair use or this kind of use of material? Because like, if you think back to past artworks, like did Andy Warhol infringe on copyright? Yeah, that yeah, that was an interesting one. So for anyone who doesn't know, like basically um in 1981 Lynn Goldsmith photographed Prince in her studio. And yeah, a couple of years later Vanity Fair uh, licensed that photo for artistic reference. Andy Warhol then um you know used that ph- photograph to, you know, create an artistic rendering of Prince basically and it was put on the cover. Um but then a few years later he also did a print series with like 15 extra images and then that was sold on to the Andy Warhol um, museum and the Andy Warhol Foundation sorry and they were sold on and money was made and then Vanity Fair uh, you know brought back like relicensed a different image that wasn't the original one. Um this stay with me. I know. <laughs> But that one was not licensed from Goldsmith. It was licensed because it was Andy Warhol's recreation for $10,000. And she was not credited on that, even though she was credited on the very, very first one. Hmm. So the question is, was he allowed to use it for the one-time use? Or was he allowed to go off and make several more and then make loads of money on it and not credit her and not give any money? And like, you know, the the... The people, a lot of the people at the core of this are no longer with us. Um, so there's questions over that. I like obviously, again, not a lawyer, not a legal person. Um, I'd imagine there must be some loophole in there that it wasn't absolutely watertight to be like, this can only be reproduced once and never, ever, ever again, which is probably the kind of licensing that well, there's might need a, like to be a, there. There's a, there's a lot to be asked for um, artists and creators needing to actually bone up on legal terms and stuff like that and and be very conscious going into licensing agreements like that's a whole thing that they're going to need to learn and just this whole way of thinking of um, art and how we consume it and how it's uh, reused and stuff like that it's such a far cry from the Napster area we're all just downloading stuff for free and thinking this this is fine this should be fine (laughs) like I'm starting to think that we're partially responsible for this attitude in music that's rising because like there's a lot to talk about when it comes to AI and music Um, so earlier this year we saw a song called Hard On My Sleeve go viral Drake and The Weeknd but not Drake and The Weeknd Um, their voices were synthesised using an AI Uh, YouTube apparently took that down for its use of an unauthorised sample nothing to do with Mm. the AI elements it was actually the the protected form of copywriting was the um, sample that was used and that's where the takedown came through so that's that's Interesting in itself. (laughs) But also, again, this speaks to the power of major production companies in the music industry or the film industry, for example. Like, they're able to quickly go after, you know, whether or not, like, the AI thing is is crackers, as you said. But, like, they know what they needed to go after and And they quickly got it. There's muddy spaces that are kind of already, like, agreed upon, maybe not on paper, but in general, where, like, you know, you have cover bands, Mm -hmm. you know, they're allowed 
to exist. They're fine. Um, but AI generated covers people are getting mm. head up about. So it's just like, ugh, we need to draw new lines, I think. It's all gone weird. Yeah, this is where the fair use stuff like really shows itself to be like completely ill-defined and very, very vague. And like what I think the idea behind fair use is it has to and be And that's a US law, we should say. But yes, a lot of this content does come out of the States. Um, it has to be transformative. So it has to be like different in some way. So whether it's oh, this isn't a reproduction of the thing, this is commentary on the thing, or this is a parody of the thing, or this is satire of the thing. Like, it has to be transformative. So, like, what can be considered transformative? How much does something need to be manipulated to be transformative? And just because you manipulate it to the point of slightly unrecognisable, does that make it okay to take for use? Mm. Question mark? Like Question this, mark? Yeah, it's concerning. more questions than answers in this uh, episode, for sure. Yeah. Uh, AI songwriting. Nick Cave called it a grotesque mockery of what it is to be human. Okay, like, I mean, it's not great. I agree, but it's, that's harsh. Um, <laughs> I I don't disagree with Nick Cave. Like, it is rubbish from what I've seen. I haven't seen good AI songwriting. That was completely done by an AI with no human input involved. But I am getting shades of the, that's not real music mm. kind of argument here from music bros. Like... Uh, that kind of experimentation with like electronica and even hyper pop and stuff like that, you see, like, you see artists like Grimes mm. embracing AI. There's a lot of great creators in that arena who happen to be not men with guitars. <laughs> and a lot of the anti side is exactly that. You've got Sting, Ed Sheeran, Nick Cave, Hosier, Guitar Lads, and Guitar Dads. <laughs> but Ed Sheeran uses loops. Yeah. Like that's just using tech in creative ways, doing something solo that he shouldn't be able to do. Like, <laughs> why are you drawing this line against other people using Because when he does it, it's fine. Because mm, he's a guitar man. <laughs> <laughs> it's a guitar lad. Um, yeah, but that is interesting because the Grimes thing, uh, Vocaloid situation that she had, which is basically she invited others to create songs using her voice, offered to split the royalties on any AI-generated track that, seed com- that saw commercial success. And TuneCore helps Grimes monitor the use of her AI voice. And Kits.ai is a company that helps other people generate AI voices based on their own and license it. So tools in the hands of the creator with compensation. I mean, can we really give out about that? I think that sounds like a cool use of this stuff. Like if it's kind of like the Stephen King, it's going to happen anyway. Maybe I can do it in a way that will actually serve me as a creator. Wouldn't that be good? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but speaking of the guitar dads, um, Paul McCartney is court in controversy with headlines about his use of AI to revive John Lennon's voice for a new Beatles release. Now, when you read beyond the headlines, mm. which were very salacious indeed, uh, it sounds like what they're actually doing is audio refinement. Yeah. So this is m- as much a work of conservation or preservation than it is like recreating John Lennon's voice and bringing him back from the grave or anything like that. I don't think it's as macabre as it's been made out to be in some circles. And the way McCartney put it is nothing has been artificially or synthetically created. It's all real and we play on it being the record. Uh, We cleaned up some existing recordings, a process which has gone on for years. Like this, it's it's refinement. It's something that we do all the time with audio these days. Yeah, and I think I think you're right about the headline stuff because I remember reading it and, and the one I saw, the particular text I saw was Paul McCartney says there's nothing artificial in new Beatles song made using AI. And immediately I was got by it. I was thinking, how? How you liar? How is it not artificially created <laughs> if it was using AI? And then I'm losing I, the word. It's artificial intelligence, Paul. 
And then I read it and calmed sufficiently <laughs> down. Um, because what's interesting about this one is we don't know much about the song because he's kind of keeping that under wraps. But if rumours are to be believed, it like it could be a recording of John Lennon from a cassette tape that he made literally for Paul. I'm pretty sure that's what it said on the cassette tape. Um, that Lennon's widow Yoko Ono gave to the remaining Beatle members at the time. I think two of those songs have been like um yeah they were able to do two of them but this one was particularly poor recording quality they couldn't yeah. use it at the time yeah so, so the, two of them are released already the rumors are, to, are are thought to be that this could be the extra song mm-hmm. which based on the express wishes of the cassette tape that John recorded and his widow giving it over to the Beatles and the Beatles then doing this I don't see the exploitation here so I think that he's correct it is not yeah it's not synthetic. It's his voice. It's it is conservation. So I don't think we're going to get John Lennon in the metaverse. But no, we do have AI pop stars. Yes, they, they're very metaversey. Yeah. So Nunuri, I have no idea if I'm pronouncing that correctly. But if if you look up Nunuri, <laughs> this is an AI pop star that's basically a coquettish Lolita esque kind of creation. It's not the first avatar influencer to pivot into pop music. Would you believe that's the age that we live in? <laughs> Says but a lot. its creator, her creator, I'm not sure what pronouns we're using here, um, is a man who donned a mocap suit to program in her motions. And like, this is a strange one, all right. And um, like, I also question here calling this an AI pop star. Like AI is essentially a marketing term now. Mm. This is as much animation as it is AI. Because mo-capture and stuff like that, that's yeah. used, you know, to give you your golems and stuff. Yeah. Um, or your video games. Yeah. Like, she's just a puppet. Like, a weird sock this guy puts on <laughs> via mocap to play out a pop star fantasy. That's what it feels like to me. Yeah, and, like, this is where I think it comes back to transparency a bit. Like, you know, if we know what it is and it's not pretending to be anything like a Nick Cave dupe, um, I mean, I it's not for me personally and it it does give me a bit of squee feelings for other reasons, but I, I think it's a totally different area of, like, you know, plagiarising music or taking away from artistry. It's just kind of a different thing like here's something else we can do yeah some people may be into it some may not yeah um, and then the voices and the AIs and stuff like that like sometimes they're individuals or a small set of people's voices that have been manipulated uh, like syn- completely synthesised voices are available but in the ones that you may have heard of that's not normally the case so again I, I'm like how much of this really is an AI pop mm. star like there's a band called Eternity that's a, like a virtual K-pop group um, and that's the thing I'm going to start using the term virtual here because calling them AI is giving them too much credit um, they have a music video with real people performing with AI swapped faces so the the generated faces are plonked onto a real dancer and it's an 11 strong group and you'll see that the only diversity factor in this group is blonde or brunette (laughs) it's like in 11 faces like that's the only differences I could see yeah I feel like this is will come into a question of like what is considered true artistry or in my personal opinion because I think that true artistry is a bit exclusionary and it tarks back to the music bros of like it's not real music mm-hmm. um, but like I, again I think it'll be just something that's kind of considered its own genre yeah like its own total it's carving out its own little space like not better not to be compared not the same yeah. as just oh here's something else yeah and maybe not for you the way Speed Bell is not for everyone yeah. but it has its own fan groups like, and there's pros to this because it could stop that exploitative K-pop industry which gets its hooks into these performers very young closes them off and it's like a Big Brother style, style house they have to have a perfected image mm. uh, a lot of them are you know 
coerced into like, cosmetic procedures and stuff like that. Like it's really shady stuff. But if you're the actor being the body instead with like an AI face in you, you can actually live your life unruffled by mm. the fame. But you're probably not going to make those K-pop dollars either yeah. because you're not actually the face. Yeah, which it does come into the weeding out of exploitation in areas that already exist. And just the let's pay workers less element of it all. <laughs> yeah, it still raises those questions around being transparent and also fair use and also fair pay. Yeah. And, and Maeve, they're another animated virtual K-pop group. Um, they're kind of made for the metaverse, essentially. Okay. And um, like, I, I don't know if it's hard to imagine that. Like, it was strange when I first heard of them. But then I was like, well, Gorillaz exists and they're a band that I really like and they're literally a cartoon band. And go even further back, Alvin and the Chipmunks. Yeah. Like, I, I was a big fan yeah. of Alvin and the Chipmunks before all the, like, CGI films, like, way back in yeah. the cartoon days. Is um, it really that strange? Yeah, and, and the gorillas are from the 90s at the end of the day. So, yeah. like, this is old. Know. This yeah. is old hat. New hat. <laughs> <laughs> but the, there is the aspect of control that I do find unsettling. Um, and especially as someone who grew up in the Britney era. Mm. It's like we said, stop trying to control young women, please. And they said, okay, we'll just create young women that we can control and they will never betray us or sue us or uh, try to end our conservative shifts or dance with knives. Thanks. I hate it. Yeah, this is this is why it made me feel squee. This is the squee feeling I meant. Like, I'm like, I'm not, it's it's not because of the artist part per se. It's just like, oh, I feel, I think it's because it's the man in the mocap creating the... It's weird. Female. It's, it's a little bit weird. Yeah, it's just yeah. giving me vibes. I'm just like, I'm not, I don't think I'm here for it. <laughs> And not for not that reasons. I have anything against a guy like do, doing performative work as, as a female avatar. It was just more that this particular female avatar is designed to be quite young permanently. And there was just this vibe that I found gross. Because um, it is kind of fulfilling a marketing team's dreams at the end of the day. Like Eternity has a lead singer, Jane, I think it's pronounced. And she has the talents of many people because she is many people. <laughs> they just punk her face on people with different skills. So they have a video of her like wakeboarding and that's because like they had got someone who could wakeboard and just planted her face on it. Um, and then it's thought that these fans can turn, to the, the, turn the avatars into virtual companions. So kind of going down that route. So that could be a marketing route. Like you could actually be, um, you know, in a sort of relationship with your pop star dream. And like, I know we all dreamed that as kids, but I'm not sure how healthy it is for us to actually be able to go down that route in future. Yeah, we're getting into be, the weird, the weird AI thing yeah. again. Yeah. And then again, like what, what is AI? The songs are sometimes composed using AI, but humans are typically involved in some degree, even if it's just editing some AI outputs. Like I do think it will be a more assistive AI mm. future, like with Autotune, which was first railed against and then we all accept it. Yeah, that's true. And you can do some interesting and creative stuff with AI, as we've already mentioned, and you can also do some problematic stuff. So, for example, BTS's management company apparently used AI to tweak one of the guy's pronunciation. So, you know, racist. racist. <laughs> um, and pitch, which, okay, fine. That's more auto-tuny. Yeah. yeah. And then released the song into six languages. So that's quite interesting. Yeah, in one fell swoop, they did some problematic and pretty cool stuff. Yeah, <laughs> with that just check. one job. Yeah, yeah. Um, there is a rapper generated a virtual rapper called FN Mika, and the story behind that is wild. Okay. Um, the the it's it's hard to explain because uh, there's a lot of uh, things I don't know about the story that like have have a kind of he said she said vibe to it but essentially this like very stereotypical rapper um creation um 
apparently had no black people involved in creating it, even though it's a black character. Now, they've claimed that there is black people involved in the creative team, but have not been able to produce any of them to comment on the record about it. So, um, so yeah, like black activist groups in the States uh, came out against this and said this is a horrible caricature. Uh, and then I was getting really caught up then to think of like, in the lyrics of the songs they were using words that some black rappers may use freely but mm-hmm. I would personally never use yeah. and like the ethics of a team of white people putting those words into a black avatar's mouth is yeah <laughs> it makes me itch oh I don't like that at all that's that's yeah. a really cagey one yeah like, I mean, we really don't go down the route of the AI agents doing the job of creating art like if it was actually AI musicians AI artists because none of this is I don't think yeah what would that mean for the diversity of choice and discovery? Because the algorithm, as we know, gives us more of the same, more of the same, more of the same. Mm-hmm. Algorithmically generated entities are just more of the same. <laughs> so yeah. how do you possibly get a breakout weirder like a Bowie or a Bjork out of that scenario? Yeah, I mean, it, what I would say, again, trying to be optimistic here, I am, it could heighten the true breakout artists and weirdos even further. Yeah, because Bjork is an artist who uses technology to amazing effect. Yeah, but also to Stephen King's point about true creativity requiring sentience, even mass-produced, sentiently created, yes, I'm making it a word, let's roll with it, has proven to produce very similar stuff from movies to TVs to like, oh, more of the same, more of the same, more of the same. Mm. We've seen so much of that. And none of that is to do with AI. All of that is to do with humans and marketing and trends. Capitalism. Yeah. (laughs) More of this? Do you want more of this samey, samey crap? Or do you want more unrequested remakes that nobody wanted ever? Mm. Um, So, like, I think... Then in the midst of all that mass-produced crap that has nothing to do with AI, you get some truly great, amazing stuff that then not only is still created, but we are all like, oh my God, finally, thank you, something original. And we loud it even more. Now, it's still harder for those things to get produced and sure, the big money goes to the samey, samey crap, but that's a capitalism problem, not an AI problem. <laughs> that sounds like a capitalism problem. <laughs> uh, so we're, I think we're kind of falling into the Stephen King camp of maybe there's not a real concern for creative practice because the fact that it requires something inherently human to be good mm. protects it in some way. I, get, I find a great, great example of this is AI knits. So like, People used AI to generate knitting patterns and then knitted those things. Um, and they're adorable, but they're freakish as well. Like they make no sense. So there's an element of creativity, but they're also not quite correct. And there's lots of fun being had there, but like maybe they're not going to be something that anyone would have set out to make. They are cool in a way, but a human being has to be involved to even do the interpretation of why this is kind of wrong and funky. There's so so many layers to it. But like AI can definitely produce things. That's that's fact whether it's artwork graphic music speeches uh, faces portraits characters scripts whatever but just because it can make art doesn't mean it can make good art yeah there's a lot of focus on productivity and being able to do the thing but like is it a good thing that you're doing or is it just churn and and how much of the motivation is commercial yeah a lot of the motivation is commercial I think like it's essentially a debate on the creative process which is like itself that arguably derives from any number of sources so an artist's influences are filtered through that artist's or creator's lens and you get art like they've taken things from all sorts of sources all sorts of influences but rather than sweat the details of that the bigger picture is the people power and if you don't have an audience or an appetite Mm. for this content then what's the problem like, you know, the Stephen King dupes. Yeah. Like, he still is the one 
being Stephen King and, yeah. and making all the, the good money there. And the good news is that even though it might be the dream of record execs, marketers and um, people in commerce trying to be cheap and not pay workers, uh, it's not necessarily what consumers want. Like There's plenty of K-pop and other art form fans that are not interested in this stuff. Yeah, and actually the founder of Creator Economy Newsletter, Creator Logic, proposed that human-made as a label is going to become like a marker of quality of digital goods. The same way some of us might pay premium on a label that says handmade or handcrafted or even like locally produced. Like that's going to be another thing Mm. that's like, this was 100% created by a human. Yeah, that's a really nice thought, I think. And like people, I think in the main, have shown that they're willing to pay artists and creators. Yeah. Um, Not when they become commercial intermediaries, but like as individuals, we've mm-hmm. kind of shown that we will pay those kind of premiums for like handcrafted, handmade stuff. Um, but those commercial intermediaries, they want to make the money. And there isn't a good precedent, I don't think, for tech paying out for artistry. Like when music streaming obliterated record companies' business models, the black the backlash becomes Spotify, the mm. major platform for music consumption, paying artists a pittance, mm-hmm. which is best illustrated in the Eurovision entry about Edgar Allan Poe where they sing they mostly sing Poe 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 po, po. but there's a part in that song where the, the song is actually about this issue and they sing the word 0.003 because that's the royalty payment you get for a stream yeah. on Spotify not even a full cent 0.003 of that cent excellent what a great Eurovision reference. I'm so happy for you. Um, so we've gotten very arty and philosophical up here and very carried away, if I'm honest. Yeah, this is a very long discussion. So I think it's time to bring in today's expert so that we can stop rabbiting on. Uh, we're going to speak about these topics and much more with Ashling Murray, an experienced curator and creative producer who recently launched Beta, an all-new international arts and technology festival that will be hosted in the Digital Hub in Dublin in November 2023. Welcome, Ashling. What are your thoughts on all of the above that we just said? <laughs> oh my God, so much. Um, yeah, I, I mean, look, I agree with a, a lot of what you were talking about there. And actually, I hadn't realised about your logo at all. That's super interesting. And the really funny thing is, actually, the logo for Beta was also created using AI, but actually just before the wave of generative uh, AI kind of really hit in the past year. So it was a designer called Leon Butler that I worked with. And he kind of old school, I suppose, in a way, created um, this machine learning algorithm and pulled different alphabets to create this font for beta and when he sent me the first version it looked really beautiful and I was like oh can, like can we not lean a little bit more into the kind of weird uncanny nature of this and he was like oh yeah absolutely I'd accidentally pulled out you know all of the ugly looking ones because he's a designer and he wanted it to look good and actually we're like no we want it to look weird and we want to pull out that weirdness in the AI so we corrupted the data set with um, like old Irish alphabet old Greek alphabet to kind of lean into these weird Weirdisms, and so actually, if you look at the uh, the the logo, it looks really imperfect, and it's so funny because when I sent it to some designer friends, they were like, "Oh, people are just going to think it's wrong, you know, it, it doesn't look right," because like there's lots of things not right about it. But that's kind of what I love most about it is that it's used this really like you know future facing AI technology, and actually, it's really imperfect. And so exactly to that point around in the future, would you have these things that say actually this is human made, where you kind of have this stamp of approval? on it yeah I think it's great yeah 
And let's get into it. Tell us about Beta, what it's all about. What can people expect? Why should they come? What will they experience? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Beta is a new festival of art and technology. And it's, I suppose, one of the, the big aims with this is to critically engage with technology's impact on society. So um, I was kind of inspired by things like looking at the National Artificial Intelligence Strategy, looking at plans for the digital transformation, and really looking at some of these conversations from local to global. Um, so looking at, you know, the conversations that were happening nationally, but then all the way up to things like the New European Bauhaus and the EU AI Act. And I suppose there's a lot of really interesting things happening in industry and in academia. And I know you've spoken to Patricia Scanlon as well, who's amazing, the AI ambassador, and it's so cool that we have her. But really, I was like, okay, how can there be more opportunity for public engagement and for the general public to understand more about the ideas and have access to these ideas and technologies? And that's something I'm really passionate about is audience-centered programming. So kind of how people can go to creative and cultural events and end up leaving, learning a little bit more about the world around them or being equipped with tools to engage more with the world around them. Um, so I suppose it's essentially programming that's underpinned by tech and digital literacy. So, so that's one big part of the festival. Um, and, you know, through that, looking at multiple access points for people of different events and activities. And then the other piece really is to really shine a spotlight on the community of artists and researchers in Ireland that are working in this area. And that's, I previously worked in an institution called Science Gallery, which is amazing. Um, and there's science galleries all over the world now. Science Gallery Dublin was the first. And really while there, I suppose it was kind of looking at uh, bringing art and science together or art, science, technology together. And there's a lot of really amazing institutions and festivals internationally that critically engage with technology. And, you know, in Ireland, we have a lot of the big tech companies based here, an increasing number of data centres. And so I really think there's an opportunity for us to showcase the community of people that are actively engaged in these things here and put a spotlight on it. So it's not a case of kind of barging in and being like, this is a brand new thing. Yes, it is a new thing, but actually it's, I suppose, giving a platform nationally and internationally to the researchers and artists that are engaged in art and technology in Ireland. So I guess uh, logistically, it's uh, it'll be three days in November. So opening on the 2nd and running the 3rd, 4th and 5th, the first weekend in November. And it's primarily going to take place up at the Digital Hub. So the Digital Hub are co-founding the festival, which is amazing. And they're really, I can't speak highly of them uh, enough. First of all, it's so nice to not be working at my kitchen table um, and have a lovely community of like artists and researchers and in company, different companies to, to engage with on a daily basis. But they've made a five-year commitment to the festival, which is incredible because it means that, you know, we're starting small this year. It's a boutique version. It's proof of concept. And it's, you know, from there, we kind of look how to grow it and kind of also just show what is resonating with audiences. Um, so it'll primarily take place in the Digital Hub campus with a conference in the bank space up there, um, an exhibition in the Digital Depot. But then we also have some off-site exhibition in CAD gallery in Palace Studios with some performance, a dance performance um, in a Project Art Centre and a nighttime programme in Taylor's Hall actually. So all kind of like largely up around Dublin 8 and the, the nighttime programme is also being sponsored by Rowan Co which is great and they're commissioning an artist as well to place augmented reality sculptures around Dublin 8 because I suppose this is the thing in thinking about an art and technology festival is you know what are the exciting or different things you can do like obviously using technology opens up loads of different access points in terms of hybridity as well but we were like actually what are the things that we could do to drive people to locations geographically so placing these augmented reality sculptures around Dublin 8 is going to hopefully drive people to different locations in the area as well. Yeah, that cool. sounds really cool. <laughs> and you, you talk there about like, you know, that kind of marriage, I suppose, of like the art and science and technology. So how do you see tech being able to expand and evolve the artistic medium and vice versa? 
Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I mean, I think that technology really is a tool in terms of creativity in the arts, you know, and I know you were mentioning some of the examples within music. I think a really good example is there's this musician called Holly Herndon, um, who, yeah, who has created Holly Plus. And actually Martin Clancy, who's an Irish researcher, has written an incredible book um, that touches on this called Music and AI, which is uh, a great read. But um, Holly Herndon has created the Holly Plus, which she calls it spawning. And it's essentially where you can uh, create um, use her voice and create different songs using her voice. So you could have, you know, a Shanno singer in Ireland use the Holly Plus and it's essentially singing in Holly's voice, but in the... So she would never be able to achieve that herself. So I think the way in which technology can enable people to push the boundaries of the way that they create work, you know, and, and, and really thinking of it in a tool in that way, you know, there was also... Uh, that I forget the name now, but there was uh, a rapper in the US that through Nokia Bell Labs, their experimental art technology program do you, yeah. do you know the name he was at Inspire Fest was or, he yeah yeah. I cannot think of his name no he's, he's was he the beatboxer yes exactly yeah. and so we'll he, get his name and we'll put it in the show notes but it's escaping me right now yeah so he he used AI through um, with the, the Lockheed Bell Labs program to um, to create new ways of beatboxing and he's he, the way he speaks about it is incredible because he was like you know I would never have thought to do some of these combinations with my voice before but actually using an, a, an AI allowed me to expand it in that way so I think you know, the thing is, AI is tra- like trained on existing data sets and all of that. So I really feel like for the kind of new, unique and innovative stuff to happen, it's really working in collaboration with us to kind of see those interesting things happen. And do you feel like we do that this is a very timely time to have an, exhi- not an exhibition, but an event like this? Because I know you didn't come up with this idea overnight. Like <laughs> This is something you've been working on, but it seems to be so zeitgeisty I right know, now. I know, It's funny because people are like, so how long, you know, um, did it take you coming up with the idea to start the festival? I'm like, oh, like a year, a year and a half. I'm like, no, this is a total lie. I've been thinking about these things for, you know, a long time. In fact, the first exhibition that I worked on to do with artificial intelligence was seven years ago in Science Gallery. It was called Humans Need Not Apply. And oh, it was, I loved that one. Yeah, that was one of my one. favorites. It was Me great. Too. Great so show, good. you know, and like really, you know, imagining a future that we're much closer to now where, you know, creativity is kind of being generated so easily and kind of what will the human role in that be? Um, but is it something like that you just, you feel like everyone else is on the wavelength that you've been on for over a year and a half yeah, or I, even longer? Completely, yeah. I, I think definitely it's, you know, it's it's great that it's so zeitgeisty and it's great that it's opening up the conversation. I think that, you know, in Ireland especially, there isn't anything existing in this space at the moment. And so that feels really t- timely for the festival to be happening. Um, and it feels like people are ready for it. You know, I think that there have been things historically. There's been amazing festivals like, you know, Future Humans Amazing, uh, like um, Glitch Festival, mm. um, even like the Dublin Electronic Arts Festival. Whereas in a way, I think even some of those things were maybe a little bit too soon or a little bit before their time. And actually, we used to hear that a lot in science galleries sometimes as well. Whereas this really, you know, thinking about how you can create a programme that brings together the different audiences of, you know, general public, um, you know, artists, researchers, industry, and actually engage with these some of these ideas all together and critically feedback on them. It feels like the, the moment has kind of arrived for that to happen, definitely. And do you think maybe that's 
sparks a bit of hope maybe for a future for the Science Gallery, which, which we've mentioned a lot, but is kind of on tenterhooks at the moment. Is it going to go forward? Is it not? We're still not quite clear on that. Yeah, I think I think my understanding is it, it will definitely reopen or certainly that has been the messaging. And, and I think it's the Festival of Curiosity who, who are involved in it, which, I mean, they're brilliant and they're probably best placed in Ireland definitely to, to do it, you know. Um, I guess the, the thing with Science Gallery is it, it was around for 14 years and in many ways when it started, STEM and STEAM weren't a part of our vernacular in the way that they are now. So arguably it achieved the thing that it set out to do. And so I think that probably, you know, obviously the closing was unfortunate, but at the same time, it is a moment for reimagining it and what it needs to do next. Like you look at contemporary art spaces around Ireland and internationally, and they're programming art and science programs or art and technology programs. So like the appetite for this is much wider now. So maybe it needs to be a different thing. And the other thing with it closing is, you know, other things emerge. I mean, obviously Beta Festival, and I'm very excited about that. But there are other things like there are a lot of really interesting art science programs that are now happening around the country. There are zines starting up. There are collect- collectives starting up. So I think there's kind of a natural cycle to these things. And I'm also trying to be very philosophical about that going into Beta and being like, OK, like, what is my exit strategy? Like, I'm so excited for it to happen but I'm also like what is the life cycle of this <laughs> very very philosophical <laughs> I applaud it I love it so how do you think then Ireland is doing in terms of fostering that culture like you said it, like, like new things are coming up and that's great but like how are how is it doing as a country in terms of actually fostering that sort of steam like do you think that there's the appetite is there as you've just said but is the support there that's a great question. I mean, you know, there are, I think there is support there and it's, but it's through, it can be through different audiences like Science Foundation Ireland, they're one of, they're supporting the festival this year and they have really interesting ways of supporting public engagement and even the way that they are running Science Week now, which actually takes place while part of the exhibition is on for beta but um, you know they have a number of different festivals happening around the country you've got things like Dublin Maker happening like there are a lot of really interesting and exciting things happening in this space I suppose of course the support can always be more and I think uh, you know thinking about how there can be um, like combined support you know the the Arts Council are going to be releasing their first digital arts policy this year which is super exciting Um, actually it's going to be launching at the festival on the first day so please come along <laughs> um, but you know so you're I, I guess that t- talks a little bit to the zeitgeist that you were talking about as well it feels like everyone's at a moment of really wanting to understand more and kind of push this um, idea around kind of art and technology so I think there could always be more support for it but there are definitely some good resources out there and there's definitely the appetite from artists and from programmers and I think you can really see that from you know some of the work being created and and some of the institutions and you've done work internationally with other in other countries as well so like have you seen a difference in the public engagement in other countries yeah um so i think you know internationally there's a lot of great like festivals and institutions you've got like Ars Electronica in Austria Transmedia in Berlin we're actually doing a residency with Transmedia in Berlin which is great it's actually Europe's longest running digital art and digital culture festival i think of course it, is, it comes anyway. from Berlin yeah of course um, <laughs> but it's actually currently run by a woman for the first first time in its history and it's an Irish woman Nora oh, Merkin yeah she's amazing um, so it's really exciting so that's you know we're teaming up to try and take over the world and have the artists and researchers in Ireland really spotlighted but um, but yeah so the, the, you know there's really good examples of that criticality I think there's probably a bit of work to do in terms of the culture of criticality in Ireland and I don't know you know is that like a historical oppression thing of you know us trying to be friendly and too nice and you know but how you create a culture of care 
around giving that kind of criticism. And, and that's everything from the way that you give criti- critical feedback in, you know, creative and artistic work being made, but also in terms in, in using our critical fac- faculties, you know, that there are, you know, in the paper that there can be the reporting on, you know, new data centres being built at the same time as like all of the kind of climate crisis and the pressure on the energy grid. And there are some journalists obviously doing incredible work around this as well. But I think, you know, more broadly across society that it would be good to have these opportunities for people to engage with the ideas. And that's really something that I, in future years and and this year, but want the the festival to be able to do is dig into some of those ideas and really equip people with some of the the tools to be able to engage a little bit more and, and hopefully leave the festival being like, do you know what, I actually understand a little bit more about that now. Or if they saw something on the news or let's say in two years there was a referendum on data rights or who knows whatever you know but but the people are just feel a little bit more like they can engage in conversation around it yeah that sounds amazing i love that you're already thinking of next year and the year after and all that yes (laughs) absolutely we want to see beta come back (laughs) um and i do think like that's amazing as well like you're get you want people to just engage with these big philosophical questions because it shouldn't be that like say the purveyors of the technology um, or the rich people <laughs> who are paying for the technology get to decide the outcomes of this. Exactly. Yeah. And that's, you know, when I talk about access, it's like it's it's access to the ideas and access to the technology itself. So even through, you know, the exhibition and events, there'll, you know, there'll be some virtual reality, there'll be some AI stuff. There's actually this piece by Joanna Walsh called Miscommunication and it's an AI version of Countess Markovic and it's been trained on her letters and first person accounts from uh, when she was alive. So it's absolutely, so you're able to have this first person conversation with Countess Markovic. It's amazing. So like through things like that, they're kind of playful and creative. You know, I hope that visitors can come in, they might engage with some of the exhibits or some of the ideas and on a very surface level, enjoy them and have fun, but then sneakily teach them things. So, like you know, we, we, we have this um, we have this exhibit by Libby Heaney, this um, British artist um, who has created this piece called Ent. And it's one of the first artworks to be created using quantum technology. And it's also about quantum technology. But now on a very surface level, it's a 360 projection and it's beautiful. Like it's just a beautiful, exper- immersive experience to go into. So I'm kind of... but then hopefully people will go in, you know, and they might go in to get their Instagrams, their TikToks or whatever it is. And then we can sneakily teach them a little bit about science and technology. So that's <laughs> always the kind of goal is like, how can you sneakily teach people? Yeah. Um, Hi, you suckers, things. you learn something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's it's taking the, the technology out of, you know, out of its usual setting of, yeah, where it is maybe only certain people that can access to it or it's in research labs or it's in industry and bring it out into a public realm where people can engage with it. And, or even going into other people's locations so one of the um, exhibits is called Potato Internet I know it's so (laughs) perfect for Ireland (laughs) but you know I don't know if you remember you know I think it's in like primary school and you do those experiments where like you use the potatoes to create a little bit of electricity so Caroline Sinders is an American artist who has created this piece and it's literally an internet powered by potatoes but it's also a small scale social media network which (laughs) I absolutely love but it means that immediately in creating a small scale social media network she's talking with the audience or she does this workshop to decide well how should it be governed and so what we're doing is we're actually working with one of the local community guards to do a a potato planting and harvesting workshop which I love because it's also you know the people that are engaged in the community garden there they might not come to Beta Festival they might not you know they probably wouldn't come to a tech and digital literacy workshop but they will go and engage in the workshops that happened in the community garden there and now then we get to take that you know into the community garden and then take it into the the exhibition space and showcase this exhibit using the potatoes from Dublin 8 which is pretty cool. (laughs) This is very guerrilla public engagement I love love your approach. Sorry yeah Yeah, it is actually. So cool. <laughs> 
Um, and I'm, I'm curious, is this tied to the Libby Heaney piece? Because you worked with the Goeth Institute on a quantum technology art residency. How, or what the hell does that even I mean? I know, I know. I, I was like nervous though. People are like, oh, Ashley knows things about quantum. I don't, guys, but I'm trying my best. I'm sorry, I'll also say that. You were like, oh, we're going to talk to an expert. Ashley, I'm not an expert at all. But I, I end up feeling if I'm able to understand something that other people are as well. I guess if I'm an expert in anything, it's probably public engagement and thinking about yeah. engaging audiences. But yeah, so the quantum, I worked with Libby over a few years, so that's kind of how I got to know a little bit about quantum and her work. And the Goda Institute then around the same time were looking to develop this quantum art and technology residency. So I ended up working with them last year a little bit and developing it. And it's super interesting because... Quantum technology, I guess, in a way is like where what I mean, AI was like maybe 20, 30 years ago, where like the Internet mm. and computing was like 70, 80, 100, you know, like way back. And so it's interesting because a lot of the artworks that have been made around AI recently or AI and ethics, some of those conversations kind of happened too late. It's great that they're happening, but they happened reactionary. And so what I find fascinating about the Goethe Institute doing this, um, it's called Studio Quantum is the name of the residency, but doing this now is that actually working with artists and thinking about the ideas creatively and partnering artists and researchers, you get to imagine kind of speculative futures and think about these things now and potentially that enables you to foresee or predict what some of these issues might be. So I think it's really exciting. And I guess that's something that the art and kind of creativity offers is really to to be able to imagine what some of that might look like. So the residency, I think, is starting end of October, beginning of November. They'll have an event during the festival and where we'll um, talk with some of the artists that will be taking part in that. It's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I can't wait. I'm going to beta. Yeah. <laughs> See you there. Beta converts. Yay. <laughs> oh, well, you knew we'd be a soft set. <laughs> uh, thank you so much. It was a really great chat. Um, and yeah, maybe we'll talk to you after the festival another time, bring you in as another expert again. Definitely. <laughs> I would love to. For Tech's Sake is a co-production from Silicon Republic and the Headstuff Podcast Network, hosted by Elaine Burke and Jenny Darmody. Thank you to Hilary Barry for production, Matt Mahan and Dali for our graphics, Claudia Grandes for her social media support, and all at the Headstuff team. You can follow us at For Tech's Sake Pod on your platform of choice, or let us know what you think via fortechsakepod at gmail.com. As a Headstuff Plus community member, you get access to bonus content from across the network, so do check out some of our sister shows and give them your support. And tune in next week for a brand new episode. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com.